This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skilful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. It was interesting for me in chanting the Metta Sutta then um, when I got to the place of radiating kindness over the entire world. What popped into my mind was my 80, nearly 88-year-old dad this morning giving me a lift. I'd stayed with them last night at their house and he gave me a lift down to the train station because it was raining. I was intending to walk um, and he wasn't feeling so well and yet you know, his care and his kindness and his love, 
he um, gave me a lift to the train station. So just connecting with that really felt experience of um, of care was quite quite beautiful. But of course, we're not here to talk about love. Today we're talking about today we're talking about the um, the second of what's at times called the three poisons or the three unwholesome um, roots of suffering. And I mentioned that that bundle of three includes hatred, aversion, anger. And just a quick recap from last week. We looked last week primarily at um, the first of them, which is the, the greed, the craving, um, and we talked about finding a language for um, talking about these mental states, which all of us experience at times, um, that encourages curiosity, that encourages us to, to be able to approach these mental states rather than demonise the mental states and then add another layer of aversion to a, an already difficult um, experience. We talked about using language um, for describing the mental states of afflictions, of defilements, destructive emotions, um, disturbing emotions, negative emotions, neuroses. So whatever helps you to hmm, feel comfortable approaching them rather than wanting to lock them out of our experience, um, please use the language that works for you. And we also last week um, looked at um, Professor Paul Gilbert's three emotion regulation systems. And I wanted to just go back to that today. Last week when we were looking at greed, we saw that that was connected to that reward or resource seeking system. Um, incentive and resource seeking system, that blue circle there. And we saw that um, it's a that reward or in you know resource seeking behavior, very normal, vital part of being a human being. Um, and that greed was when this got out of control, if you like. It was the excessive activation of the reward or the drive system, that that moving towards getting what we need. So it's excessive activation or an inordinate desire to acquire, possess more than we need, whether it's money, sex, power, food, resources, um, any number of things. And we can see that um, what we're talking about today is that bottom red circle. And again, connected to a very vital part of um, just our, our organism, if you like, um, we, we know the threat system, we know the experience of fight or flight or freeze. Um, and we could say that anger and hatred are maybe an excessive or even at times an inappropriate activation of that threat system. And so we're looking today at what happens when the threat system uh, is controlling us 
rather than us being able to see it happening and make some choices relate to it. So putting that up just to remind us that um, what we're talking about are very normal, natural parts of being a human being. And even though they're normal and natural, sometimes they are also, as the, the name um, indicates, a root of suffering. So how do we relate to these um, aspects of being a human being? We, we see that um, one of the effects of what we were looking at last week, greed, what we're looking at this week, hatred and anger, is that they tend to distort our perception of reality. When we're in the grasps of craving, um, what happens is that the mind then idealises its object. You know, that piece of chocolate cake is going to make me so happy. It's, you know, we idolise the thing that we are craving, greedy for. And that's a distortion of reality. And similarly, when we're um, under the impact of anger and hatred, the effect on reality is that um, our, our mind tends to demonise what it is that we're looking at, um, demonise the object. Um, it could be a politician. That politician is 100% bad, no redeeming features, a distortion of, of reality. And... The misapprehension opens a gap between our perception of things and the way things are. And when aversion is present, it's as if we are looking at the world through a distorted lens. And that lens adds additional ugliness to what it is the object that we're looking at. It changes our view. I think it can be useful to think about the impact of these unwholesome states as something that gets between us and reality. Anyway, I'll come back to that. Um, there's so many ways that we can look at these uh, unwholesome mental states and there's no way that we can explore them in um, in depth. I thought tonight, uh, when I was thinking about it, about this one in particular, I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to explore anger and aversion and hatred through um, sort of three, looking at it in three dimensions, intrapersonal, so how I relate to myself at times, interpersonal, how I relate to another person, and then at a societal or global level, because aversion can appear in our relating at those three different levels. Um, yeah, so I just thought, hmm, let's see how, how that goes, looking at it this way tonight. Of course, there are other ways that we could categorise and look at it. Um, as well. So if we start with intra 
personal aversion within me. What we're demonising then, the object of our aversion is some aspect of what we see as ourselves. Um, it could be aversion to the body, to something we're feeling, an emotion, um, any mental state. And that aversion can be experienced and often is experienced as an inner critic. And the inner critic is actually not just demonising, in this case, some aspect, some passing mental state, some changing bodily sensation. What the inner critic has as its target is me, a very fixed sense of, um, again, identifying the mental state or the body image or whatever it is that is um, being perceived as uh, wrong and unwanted um, as me. That's the problem. And we talked about identification last week as well. And it, it's certainly bound up as, as um, part of the way that this becomes an unwholesome route. And just as a, a little example, I was thinking of a little example of how this played out, has, you know, it plays out all the time for us. But uh, one way that played out that was quite clear to me because I was on retreat at the time um, and, you know, when we're on retreat, we have uh, a greater capacity to see the moment-to-moment -moment changes um, in our uh, inner experience because that's the primary focus of, of what we're doing. And some years ago I was on retreat and the teacher a nine-day retreat, the teacher had group interviews. Um, so every few days we'd come together with the same group and he'd check in on how our practice was going. Now, one morning um, I had a group interview later in that day and that morning I was doing some walking meditation. And rather than bringing mindfulness to the experience of walking, usually what you do in walking meditation. I was instead, my mind, this mind was rehearsing what it was going to say in the group interview, trying out different options. And there was also a subtle sense in the background of, as I was rehearsing these um, different options, of wanting to appear spiritually competent to the other yogis who would be in the group interview. And I knew a number of them and a number of them were also meditation teachers. So I could feel a particular need to impress them. Um, I wanted to look good in front of them. And in some ways, just as I say that, we can also see last week's affliction also arising here. Um, and it didn't take long as, as I was observing the mind doing this rehearsing, feeling also this um, desire to impress, didn't take very long before the inner critic arrived. 
What kind of person are you, Catherine? You are so needy, needing to impress the others, wanting to look good. This is pathetic. You get the tone. Um, and you'll also see the, the identification of a passing set of thoughts, mental processes with this is who you are, Catherine, this needy, pathetic individual. So it's now become fixed and encompassing. Um, and then next, of course, arrives the shame, um, the shame at feeling needy and weak. There was lots of aversion to that perceived weakness, that need to impress. Um, so when it came to interview time, rather than um, bring out all the clever things that I'd been rehearsing, uh, I took that experience that I've just described to you to the group interview. And it was, you know, <laughs> Um, I experienced it as very unpleasant to, to sort of lay out what I saw as being a very defective mind to others. But, you know, that's what, what it's all about. Um, and the teacher was great. He normalised the rehearsing that the mind had been engaging in. He normalised the need to appear competent. And that process really helped the very tight and aversive spiral that I was caught in to open up into a, a much bigger, kinder space. And, and through that turning towards, through that investigative process, that enabled me to accept the thoughts and feelings, the insecurities, the desires, as something that will arise when the conditions, when the causes are right and to um, sort of subtract that layer of aversion and identification that had, um, had added to, to the, the situation. Um, you know, what would it be like to just simply affect that they, accept that these things had arisen, feel the power of those mental states, investigate, understand, even embrace this as being part of the um, myriad ways that a human mind uh, works. As a, a sidebar, I just want to mention a little bit about self-criticism because I'm talking here about self-judgment, self-criticism, and it's uh, Self-criticism has been shown in mental health research to be associated with higher levels of a number of mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance abuse, um, even suicidality. The research points to that self-criticism, that self-judgment, both as contributing to those mental health challenges as well as being um, resulting from them. And for me, it's so interesting to, to know about that result uh, research because it's sort of like an added incentive to work um, 
more intentionally with the self-judgment when it comes up. Make friends with this self-judgment. Make friends with the unwholesome mental states rather than judging them. And in um, highlighting the, the downside of self-judgment and self-criticism, obviously I'm not advocating ignoring unskillful states of mind. Um, there's a big distinction between self-criticism on the one hand and balanced self-reflection, which can acknowledge when we stuff up, when we... Um, and, and maybe what's needed to respond more skillfully. So that was a, a little reflection on intrapersonal aversion. Um, again, just to let everybody know, our meditation will be starting a little bit later than usual probably because I do want to talk about at least interpersonal um, anger, hatred, aversion before we move to the meditation. And when we think about interpersonal, so between two or more people, many of you will know um, that anger is sometimes described as an emotional that has the same effect as picking up a burning coal and throwing it at someone. It harms you. It harms the other person. The analogy is, I think, a, a good one because it helps us see that the suffering is caused by the behaviour that follows the anger, not the anger itself. If we leave the coal where it is, it'll burn itself out. We won't be burned by it, nor will the other person. So it's how we relate to the the burning coal, the anger, that can make all the difference. Anger, like all other emotions, is useful. It gives us information. And we don't want to miss that information. Um, that information can be protective. It can energise a healthy response when we're um, being threatened in some way. What's important is to not stay in the anger, but to look below the anger and see what it is um, that's needed. Uh, maybe see where a boundary has been violated, um, what it is if it's a value or something important that we care about that's being um, in some way undermined. Then we can take steps. Um, it's, it's different to uh, being caught in that contracted, reactive angry mind state, to be able to see, ah, oh, it's telling me something. It's, it's, that's what it's telling me. Then we can hopefully take um, some wise action to support what's needed in the situation that underlies the anger. Instead of picking up that burning coal, we can investigate the anger. And in part, that's one of the things that we develop that capacity as we do our practice. Um, meditation uh, enables us to strengthen our capacity to sit with a range of experiences, to sit with discomfort. 
Um, and we need to learn to sit with discomfort because anger is intensely activating because it is designed to get us to pick up that coal and throw it at the other person. Anger wants us to do that action, do that behaviour um, without asking any questions. It, it's not um, immediately apparent to us um, when anger arises what it is that's below, uh, that's, that's informing, if you like, that's informing the anger. Um, and so developing the capacity to, to pause, to turn towards, may enable us to see what's below, something that might be in fact unconscious at the time, below our consciousness when the anger erupts. So that mindful pause uh, is such a useful habit to, to be developing in our day-to-day -day activities um, as a support for, for what's happening, get a, a greater clarity of, of the picture. And if we are turning towards anger, hatred, aversion, investigating this experience with kindness um, you know there are different ways that we can do this there are different questions that we could ask ourselves and um, I have to acknowledge that some I, th I think often we start doing this in uh, retrospectively as we build up this capacity we get closer and closer to the intense experience of anger to be able to do it but we, we can start by, oh, what was going on there, you know, two hours ago, two days ago, a week ago, 10 minutes ago. Um, and some of the questions that might be useful to pose to ourselves in that situation where we've found anger or hatred, aversion arising. Mm, what were the causes and conditions of that anger? Maybe there was an unmet need. Maybe there was a value I, I believe in very strongly that was transgressed. How does the anger, how did the anger show up in my body? Feeling the experience as a bodily experience can really help to um, deepen that pause because it takes us out of the thoughts that are fueling the anger and continuing the anger and exacerbating the anger and into something which doesn't have a story until we put a story on it, you know, those body sensations. How does this feel? We can ask, well, what does this anger want me to believe? Is that really true? Is it the full picture? What, I'm, what might I be missing? Where does the energy of this anger push me? And what are the likely consequences of acting from that anger? What's the potential suffering that will result from acting? And um, 
you'll remember that one of the translations of kilesas or poisons was unwholesome roots of suffering. What is the suffering that's caused by this mental state? And, you know, in terms of how human beings and other animals learn, connecting the um, mental state of anger with the suffering is a, a useful thing because if we see the suffering, if we remember the suffering, if we attend to the suffering, it's more likely to support us to engage in behavioural change. We see the downside of it. One um, very, <laughs> I don't know if it's, I was going to say very light example that I'm going to give you um, of engaging in this, a bit of an investigation of my aversion. Um, it's light in that it's, it has not yet resulted in any um, harm to anybody else. Um, but it's certainly something that recurs for me still. Um, so here's, here's my little example of playing with, um, trying, to, trying to get a handle on an aversive reaction I have um, to, to soften it. Um, where, near where I live, uh, there's a wetlands and around that wetlands, there's a path where I often walk. Um, and that path is designated as an on-lead area for dogs. I don't have a dog. It's not uncommon to find dog poo somewhere along the path. I still don't have a dog. Now, some dog owners, choose to ignore the very clear signs that are around the path that show that it is a dog on lead area and they let their dogs off lead to roam. So you can already hear that story that might be playing in this mind, you know, the reasons that, uh, you know, I see, the, I see the dog, I see the human being and I'm much more um, aversive to the human being than the dog. The dog didn't choose what's going on. Um, you know, the reason that they've left their, let their dog off lead is so that they don't see where the dog poos and then they don't have to clean it up. Um, and that, of course, leads to a lot of self-righteousness and uh, indignation that accompanies that story. Now, you can see that it's going to be a an often repeated opportunity for me to practice. Um, I, I'm out there watching this regularly. When, and I do, <laughs> try to mostly, um, investigate the, the mental state that comes up. And what I see is a real narrowing of my attention. I see the anger that the the aversion really grabs it narrows my attention onto the the story about the bad dog owners and along with that aversion are judgments about them as well in that state i can really feel the contraction i can feel the contraction in my body i can feel the contraction in my mind um, when that aversion is there it's like that's what's controlling the mind. There's there's no space for anything else. And already naming that, I, I 
I'm pointing to the suffering that comes from that. I'm out in a beautiful place, birds, trees, lots of beautiful things going on, and my mind can be tight and contracted. That's suffering. So investigating um, that aversion, um, one of the things I've done is to acknowledge that, hey, at times I break rules that others think are important. Um, I'm, I don't stop at every stop signal that I pass, for example. I do look and I'm careful, but I don't always come to a full stop. Sometimes I go into second gear and I think that's good enough. Some people don't. So my view on rules will be some, I'll be somebody else's bad person in, in that interpretation. I also reflect that if I had a dog, I'd probably want the dog to run free too. Um, and maybe the intention of the dog owners isn't to avoid picking up their poo, but it's wanting their dogs to enjoy the experience more. When I investigate how this aversion feels in my body and mind, I see how unpleasant it is. Um, it's suffering not only because of the tightness and the contraction and the narrowing of my focus, but I also see that it completely. Um, it acts as a complete obstacle to the potential connection to others. I am othering those people as bad others that I don't want anything to do with. And that's certainly not how I want to go about in the world. Um, my heart feels closed when I'm in that state. In, in trying to understand and investigate and open up a little bit the aversion that arises, I, I don't want to give up my value that, hey, I think it's appropriate that dogs should be on the lead in that space. It's, it's what's designated. But this opening up of the um, how I understand what's happening has helped um, plus my intention not to be contracted, my intention not to be closed-hearted, hard-hearted, has helped me to um, develop greater capacity um, to see the humanity of the dog owners rather than, than other them. And... I, I've, I can see that what happens um, in my mind to the dog owners is just the same process of identification as when what I described in the intrapersonal um, aversion. I've seen them as just one thing, a bad person who lets their dog off the lead. I don't see all the great things that they do. I don't see the, you know, other aspects of who they are as um, people. I've identified them in a very narrow and um, inaccurate way. My Certainly my aversion has given me uh, glasses through which to see that makes them look uglier than they are. And so I've developed the practice of trying to bring all of that awareness to the process and you know, if, if my mind is still doing its little aversion process, see them, um, come to the uh, point of seeing them as other human beings, undoubtedly with other um, qualities, many things I don't know about, um, and 
with that desire not to disconnect, I mentally just wish them a good day. I hope you have a good day. Um, and depending on, you know, how I've gone, that could be more or less heartfelt. Um, but nonetheless, it's an intention, an intention not to cut myself off from them and um, see them as, as bad others. So intrapersonal, interpersonal that we just talked about and societal or global hatred and aversion and anger. I won't talk too much about that, but we see it on the news every day. Um, we see uh, accounts of wars in different places based on um, differences between groups. Um, we see genocide, examples of modern slavery. There, there are any numbers of ways that hatred, aversion, anger um, is causing suffering around the world. So let's move into the meditation for tonight. Um, in the meditation, it's useful just to keep an eye out for any time where you might be ref relating to your experience through the lenses of aversion. Just noticing that and seeing if it is possible to take the lens of aversion off. Remembering that loving kindness is the antidote to um, hatred, to anger. I thought we might, um, at the beginning of the meditation, the invitation if you'd like to follow it and I'll guide us through it is to experiment a little bit with bringing an attitude of kindfulness to some small unpleasantness that we might feel in the body. It's an experiment um, and then we'll move into silence for the last part of the meditation. As always just give it your best shot and let that be good enough. So if you need to stretch or rearrange yourself uh, to get into a position that you can keep it, I'm going to grab the bell. And, you know, there may, it may be that there's been lots of thoughts or reflections or questions or criticisms or judgments or um, memories generated through some of the things that I've said. 
and they may be moving through the mind. Not a problem. You might choose to bring the attention back into the body. Using the whole body as an anchor for your attention. Feeling the places where the body is making contact. The feet on the floor. The backs of the legs on the chair, the bottom, the lower back, that's if you're sitting in a chair. Maybe feeling the contact that your hands are making either with each other, maybe resting on the thighs. And it's quite possible that as the attention turns inward to the body, you also become aware of the, the movement of the body caused by the breath. The expansion of the body whether it's the belly or the chest, on the in-breath. And then the coming back on the out-breath. Resting the attention in this breathing body.
And is there any aversion here as we settle into meditation? You might notice resistance or aversion to that question itself. I don't do meditation to hang out in aversion. I do it for some peace from aversion. So what if our turning towards the unpleasantness of aversion was for the purpose of making a new friend, of developing a new way of relating, bringing understanding, care, kindness to any aversion present? This new way of relating in itself can bring some peace, whatever the particular mind state. It's much more peaceful not to be fighting reality. If you feel like this little experiment tonight, scanning through the body for some sensation that is a bit uncomfortable, some niggle, a little ache, some discomfort. Nothing too big, nothing beyond what you are able to be with tonight. Maybe it's simply a sensation that you prefer you didn't have. Experimenting with bringing kindfulness to this experience too. Can I meet this thing that I don't want with care? Can I soften towards it rather than brace against it? Can I get to know this? discomfort without any agenda other than to relate to it fully. And no agenda, bringing no agenda means that we don't have a secret desire to get rid of it. We don't use this turning towards as a sneaky way to get it to go away.
Can I hold this unwanted part of my experience as I might hold a teething baby? Knowing that discomfort in a human body is as natural and inevitable as discomfort that comes from a baby's new teeth emerging. And feel free to bring that same accepting, open kindfulness to any other sensations that might arise in the body that aren't particularly wanted a niggle, a tightness, an ache. Building up this capacity to be with unwanted aspects of our experience with curiosity, with care, rather than aversion.
if you find the mind getting caught in stories or memories and losing your awareness of what is going on, it can be useful to bring the attention back into the body re-establish mindfulness through the body or if you're more used to using the breath as the anchor or something else that's fine but inviting attention back to your anchor which might be the whole body resting breathing And noticing the tone of your attending. Is it a tone which is open and caring, curious and kind, or are you looking at experience through the lens of aversion? Noticing and if there is a version present, we relate to the presence of aversion with kindness. Ah, aversion's here. Oh, tending to aversion itself as we might. Hold a teething baby.
And you might continue to notice the small discomforts in the body, bringing with the attention an openness and acceptance, a care, even a tenderness towards the unwanted, towards the aspects of experience that we normally resist and push away. This practice of allowing of sitting with the discomfort of caring for the discomfort rather than shutting it out, making a problem of it. And we start with the the discomforts that are in the manageable range. We build up capacity. It doesn't serve us to start with the most intense and difficult. We start with the dull ache in the toe. that we can that we can be with we can be with with care we can soften towards
Thank you, Catherine. That was lovely. Thanks for reminding or me <laughs> about your wishing or your, well, not motto, but saying to the people whether they've annoyed you or not, may you have a lovely day. May you have a brilliant day. <laughs> I remember you mentioned saying that in Armadale as well a few years ago. I've forgotten that. So thank you. Pleasure, mm. Pinda. Yeah. And uh, we've got about 15 odd minutes just over. So would you prefer, would you take some questions? Absolutely. But before I do, um, and I don't know how this is going to translate for our international audience, I've got a poem by Michael Lunig, who is one of Australia's living national treasures. Um, now I'm just looking through to see if Helen's here. She was going to read it for me, but I don't know if she's still here. She had to go and pick up her husband from the airport, so I think she might have left. But I'm going to put up the poem. Um, Sandra, do you feel like reading it for me, just a, a new voice? Yeah, I can do that. It's, okay, can you hear me properly? Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have enough breath um, <laughs> to laugh. Um, the pie of life. The pie of life is hurled into your face every day. But that is no disgrace. A life worth living gets splattered on your shirt. And though you're shocked and rather deeply hurt, these pies of life which fly out of the blue, you're made for them and they were made for you. I hope that that's as apparent to everybody how it relates to tonight's talk. Um, what I see um, Michael Lunig there in embodying in his poem is just this sense, an embrace of the messiness of life, an embrace of the reality that life won't always um, look like a beautifully made up model on the front of Vogue. Sometimes it'll look messy. Sometimes it'll look, sometimes it won't be what we want. Um, and can we, can we see it, whatever our experience is, not as wrong, not as a mistake, but how do we relate to it? Um, and Michael Lunig's embrace of that messiness, I think can help us to turn down a little bit that um, resistance to experience when it doesn't go as we want and um, encourage a more open and caring um, way of relating to it. So I don't know if anybody has any, any questions or reflections or comments. 
Um, as Pinder said, we've got a little bit of time. Feel free just to take your mic off mute if, excuse me, you'd like to, um, or raise the hand with that little reaction thing down the bottom of the screen. Um, either way is good. And Shirley, I'm guessing you're scratching rather than putting your hand up. Can I ask a question? <laughs> yes. Um, so thanks for your sharing. I think uh, what you have talked about today uh, relates a lot to my own experience. Um, my question is that sometimes I feel I don't think sometimes I just realize that because as you talk about observe my mind and then I find that it, it maybe go like um, a little bit too far to say that I feel good when I criticize myself or mm -hmm. I feel good like hating other people and hating myself but um, it certainly brings me kinds of comfort and then I feel I, I, may, I may feel safe in that headspace and then it becomes something that I it is a little bit hard for me to let go of because sometimes when I like I notice I'm criticizing myself and criticizing other and then I would try to like I will see if I can let it go or not but sometimes it's um for most of the time it's hard because I feel I don't know how to say but I feel the sense of like <laughs> not I feel I don't know how to say I feel good it's not really that 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 word but you get what I'm saying so can you give me some advice on that thank you yeah I think it's a really good point um and there's two things I just wanted to comment on on what you're saying um one of them is around um just acknowledging the the depth of your awareness of your own inner experience. Um, what you've described is, is a real clarity of the process that you're observing in your mind, um, which is a really useful starting point. The other aspect is around the pleasure that we can get from that righteous anger or putting somebody else down. We get this little buzz of, ah, oh, for a moment, it feels good because I'm not the one that's down. I, for a moment, can feel, you know, um, that I'm better than that person or, I, you know, that person's bad. That little buzz of pleasure is really um, a, a very unhelpful part of the whole uh, components of the mental, mental state because it can, um, and the more that we do it also, um, uh, and and that's what we focus on, the more enticing it can be. One of the things that, that as you were talking, um, that also I was reminded of was the um, effect of practicing particular patterns and habits, just strengthening those particular patterns and habits. You know, the Buddha talked about it, and we know from neuroscience that neurons that fire together wire together the more that we do something the more habitual it becomes the more that we practice it the stronger it becomes and so it's not an easy thing to let go of some of those habits um, particularly when they can give us that little buzz of um, 
pleasure in that moment, even though in the big picture, we know actually this isn't good for us. But in the moment, it's giving us a little buzz of pleasure. It takes uh, a bigger picture to be able to see staying stuck in blaming, staying stuck in self-criticism. It's not good for me. It's not good for anybody. Um, so it's it's the standing back that that enables us to see the suffering that is being caused by the self-criticism or the suffering that's being caused by the blaming or the self-righteousness and how that disconnects us from others, how it keeps us locked in a, uh, a small, hard heart. Um, and, yeah, that little burst of pleasure um, can be really unhelpful, uh, but it also can be part of the, part of the experience. Um, mm. Yes, I think I like you mentioned about the pleasure because it sounds like addiction to me. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your comment. <laughs> and um, I think that's why often uh, changing some of these habits, we can't change them in the moment. We only change them in retrospect by looking back on it and being able to say, oh, I was caught in that. This was what was going on. Examining it through a bigger lens, examining it with the wisdom of right view, of dukkha, of the other aspects um, of the path that help us then um, understand the the small experience in a bigger picture. Um, yeah, Pinder or Karen? Yes, Karen. First of all, thank you. I was so impressed by what you said, and I want more. <laughs> Greedy for more. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm now I'm analysing. I'm that person who was walking around thinking how I could impress the rest of the group. I don't want to. I don't want to impress you. I don't want to sort of curry you but I really do want to know more about what you said and I wonder of course do you have any have you written any books or made any recordings that I can listen to yeah there's one from tonight <laughs> yes but I want more <laughs> we want more <laughs> um oh well it's I'm glad Karen that it, it hit the spot and was useful it did. Um, I haven't written any books um it should <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know I was just trying to I was just I was just feeling into that I want more and we we know that um you know desire can be a motivating a very positive and motivating um feeling mindset yeah. and it can be positive and motivating in a really wholesome way mm -hmm. um so it's not that every desire is uh is unwholesome it it also you know I, I know this isn't what you were talking about but it just made me think about it in 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 the sense that desire can in fact be opening rather than closing and narrowing you know uh, the the um desire of greed is a very um self-focused uh narrowing whereas the desire of learning more about the dharma can be a really opening and connecting um, desire. So we don't need to, I mean, we don't, it's not helpful to demonize any mind state, I think. But, um, you know, that desire sounds 
might not be such a bad one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Gita. Ah, uh, you're on mute, I think, Gita. I was thinking about the comment that Gloria made, and <clears throat> I thought the other layer in that was how much anger with this adrenaline kind of energy behind it can be so ego-reinforcing. This is me. I'm here. I'm alive. And that that um, eye-making is another part of why I think sometimes we struggle to let go of it um, and get that buzz, you know, buzz of being alive. So I just thought I'd add that bit, extending what you were saying. Mm. Thanks, Gita. I always appreciate the additional depth that you can bring. Well, if there is no, no, ah, uh, Sandra. Oh, can I just say I'm getting so much joy out of watching, I don't know the proper name, Mong's, M-A-U-N-G's writing. It's, I just mm. wanted to say that's beautiful. She might be right. The other thing I was wanting to say is that I felt like there were a lot of cream pies today. <laughs> And then and it was quite a heady day, really. And then I had a look at this and I thought, oh, my goodness. So and then I remembered, yeah, okay, at the root of this, there's usually some kind of fear or delusion that's going alongside this anger that I seem to be receiving down the WhatsApp or the email or whatever it was. And it was just helpful to remember um, those three poisons in that context, I guess, and think, okay, so what? So if I engage a bit of karuna, a bit of compassion, what is making, what would that person be fearful of? And I kind of worked it out. I was like, ah. So they feel a bit exposed. So what I need to do if I'm to be compassionate to them, is set a bit of an example. And we ended up resolving the issues today. They, they weren't really, you know, do or die kind of things. But in the heat of the moment, they were quite heady. So I guess that's where, um, I don't know why I felt the need to ramble, but I guess that's why the um you know the buddha's teachings are just like a good set of guardrails just reminding us what it is to be human but the other thing i just picked up on was that you know we it's i think our modern schooling system's got a lot to answer for we're so i think in our minds even as adults we're still trying to pass the test and just because you feel that anger or you feel it rise, it's 
No, it doesn't call for a beat up. The trick is to know that it's arisen. And then you can do something about it. It's when it runs loose and you become separated that it's an issue. But anyway, that's just my five cents worth I wanted to share for some reason. Okay. Mm. I should meet. Thanks, Sandra. And um, underlying there the the vital role of mindfulness through um, being able to respond to these unwholesome states of mind that arise. Without mindfulness, we are certainly going to be um, consumed by them and taken over by them. Um, yeah. And I see that it's 8.30. So we'll bring... Um, proceedings to a close but thank you all for showing up for engaging in life in a way that um, or bringing an intention to engage in life in a way that is of benefit not only to yourself but those whose lives you touch um, this is certainly not something which is just an individually focused practice uh, and may maybe just having a sense of of the benefit that um, is generated through coming together and doing this practice of it rippling out into the world of the people whose lives we come into contact with. And maybe Sandra's example tonight was a good one um, of being able to bring her practice into some interpersonal relationships today um, to good effect. So thank you all for showing up and same place, same time next week. No email from Marlene. Um, and I think she'll send one out the week after. I think that's the plan. So thanks, everybody, and have a good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Catherine. That was thank great. You. Good night. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was very interesting. Bye, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Catherine. That was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Good. Catherine. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Oh, lovely to hear. Thanks, guys.